Welcome to another week of uh, reading through the uh, New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. I hope you're doing well today. Um, This is uh, for uh, the week. I think this is going to be gaming out. Is it August? Oh, wow. This is bad. Maybe like August. um, I think this is week 34. We're in Galatians chapter 4 and going through Ephesians uh, 2 today. My mind is not working about when this uh, should be coming out, but it will come out. I think it'll be the 21st of August. Um, So I hope you're doing well uh, today as we are now uh, on the uh, downhill when it comes to summer, aren't we? We're uh, uh, coming. uh, We've enjoyed summer, and now football season is fast approaching. And uh, um, so it's, it's been good. It's been good. I hope you're all doing well as uh, you're listening to this uh, today. So we've been in the uh, book of uh, Galatians. We've been walking through that. Um, last week we opened up with uh, um, some stuff from Charles Simeon, that, uh, that, that uh, Church of England uh, pastor, preacher, um, who uh, has uh, a, a really great uh, you know, like sermon outlines and such that, that really help us. I think they're very helpful and, and faithful to biblical truth. So we're going to walk through that again with Galatians 4, 5, and 6. And then we're going to open up with uh, Ephesians uh, chapters 1 and 2. And now, before we go into Galatians... I want to kind of open up a little bit with Ephesians, uh, so that way we can we can uh, whenever we come to read through Ephesians, then uh, we can we can do that. So we talked about Galatians. Galatians is an early epistle of Paul. It's an early letter that Paul wrote. So it's near the beginning of his uh, writing ministry or the scripture ministry that we have of the Apostle Paul. And there he's writing, of course, to oppose the uh, Judaizers, uh, people who were arguing um, that in order to be made right with God um, or to be accepted with God, more is required than simple faith in Jesus Christ. That something is more necessary than Christ crucified, buried, and risen and ascended for our sins. Something more additional to that is necessary for us to be accepted with God. And therefore, they were arguing that the uh, Old Testament law, uh, particularly the uh, Mosaic law, the law from uh, that was given uh, through Moses in uh, the books of like Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that law was required for believers to be made right with God and applicable to believers in the New Testament. Now, of course, uh, Paul argues in Galatians and in the book of Romans that this was never the case, even in the Old Testament, that Abraham, the father of the, uh, the, the, the biological father of Jews, the spiritual father of all true believers, and the uh, fleshly father also of the Lord Jesus Christ, was not made right with God by keeping the law. In fact, as Paul points out, the law came after what, 430 years after Abraham. So therefore, if Abraham was made right with God uh, 400 and some years before the law was given, then it is impossible for the law of Moses to make us right with God. In fact, he argues that the law was given not in order to say, um, now be made right with God by doing these things. In fact, the law was like a tutor, almost like a... Uh, it it was a, a not I don't want to be uh it wasn't um 
it was a very strict teacher. There was a strictness because the law was like a uh, a teacher meant to uh, teach Israel to teach them that they could not keep the law and that they needed Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. They needed somebody to come and to take away the curse of the law because of their lack of obedience to it. So because they cannot obey the law, they they needed a savior to take their place, to take the curse of the law upon them so that they could be set free. And that's been the whole argument of Paul, is that you don't actually understand the Old Testament itself. Salvation has never been that way. And and so I think it's very important for us to realize that, by the way. Paul's argument in Galatians and Romans and in his preaching in Acts and Jesus' own argument, his argument is not, well, that's the way it was back then, but it's different now because I've come, because Jesus has come. That's not the argument. The argument of Jesus and Paul is you have misunderstood. If, if you think that you can be saved by doing the law, you've misunderstood the Old Testament. Have you not read the Old Testament? And so they're actually saying, no, it's never been by keeping the law. In fact, the law was given to lead us to Christ as a tutor, to instruct us, to show us our need of the promised Savior to come. And that's why the Abrahamic covenant ultimately is a Christ-centered covenant because he says it was made to Abraham and to his offspring, to his seed. And Paul interprets that and says, this primarily to Abraham and to his seed does not say seeds, plural, but seed, singular, therefore referring to Christ. Therefore, Paul's entire argument is Christ was promised and in a sense present in the covenant with Abraham that preceded the law. So Christ comes before the law even, and that's what his argument is. The promise of salvation in Christ has always been the way people have been saved, whether that be with Abraham, Moses, David, or us today. That is Paul's argument. That is what he's saying. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, as we open up now, he is continuing on to uh, teach them uh, this. And now, I guess I, I got kind of sidetracked, didn't I? Because I was going to teach us a little bit about, I was going to walk through about Ephesians. So Ephesians, uh, the Galatians, that's what a Galatians is. Now, Ephesians, uh, later on, is, as we're going to go to, is again written by Paul, but it's written by Paul later on in life, about the year 60 or so. And he's writing it from prison. So Paul is writing the letter to Ephesus from prison, and this uh, seems like it may have been a letter that was passed around or directly written to Ephesus, and we really don't know exactly the reason why he wrote this. You know, we know what he wrote, but we don't know like what prompted him to write this. Uh, there's no clear occasion like there is in the book of Galatians where we see heresy being taught, and so Paul responds strongly against it. The book of, F, of, of Ephesians, uh, we're not really told why he wrote it. We're not really told the, the occasion. But we do know, as one New Testament introduction says, that it was the purpose here is to declare and promote cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ. Paul is going to show how everything, uh, whether it be in the heavenly places in eternity past or in our salvation now, whether it be Jew or Gentile, Old, New Testament, everything finds its 
focal point and connects to Jesus Christ. Everything is unified and brought together in him. That is what he's going to preach to us. Now, this this book was actually John Calvin's favorite. Um, so the book of Ephesians was, and actually um, he has a book of not simply his sermon, uh, his uh, commentaries, but Calvin also has, uh, there's a book of sermons that you can buy, I think from Banner of Truth Trust, if you wanted to, of on his uh, sermons on Ephesians. They're very, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, thought of them very highly. In his book on commentaries, he, he lists Spurgeon's sermons as one of the top in, uh, uh, commentaries on Ephesians and says they're, they're priceless. And actually the great um, Scottish reformer, um, John Knox. You may have heard of him. He was a, uh, during the Reformation, John Knox was a very important figure, a very important preacher um, uh, in, the, in the church in Scotland. And actually, I think I've heard it said, right, that he, on his deathbed, wanted, wanted uh, Calvin's sermons on Ephesians read to him. So that's how valuable they were. But this is Calvin's favorite a book. And so really, if you want to look at the outline of Ephesians, really there's, uh, apart from the opening of the first two verses, it really breaks up between the first and three chapters each. The first three chapters are really Paul talking about all of the, 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 the what we have in Jesus, what God has done for us. Then, beginning in chapter 4 all the way through chapter 6, Paul is then going to talk to us about, in light of what God has done for us, here's how you now live and walk. Here's what your life should be characterized by. So that's what we have in Ephesians. Okay, now let's begin uh, looking here uh, at the book of Galatians chapter 4. So the first thing I want to read... um, Uh, from uh, Charles Simeon is based off of Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Galatians 4, verse 6, let me turn to it. It says here, of course, Paul is making this point that um, uh, he says in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, talking about Jesus, obviously, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And so here, uh, verse 6, the spirit of his son into our hearts. Simeon has a section here where he talks about uh, the spirit of adoption. What does this mean? What is Paul talking about? What is this idea of God's put his spirit into us, having saved us from our sins because of Christ alone? Well, he writes this. If we were to judge by the exterior of men's lives, we should be ready to think that Christianity had done but little hitherto for the world. For it must be confessed that of those who profess our holy religion, the greater part differ very little from heathens. But then it must be recollected that there is much wrought by the gospel, which, though to a certain degree visible in its effects, is seen clearly only by God himself. There is in everyone who receives the gospel a right, a change, both in his state before God and in the secret habit of his mind. From an enemy to God, he is made a friend and a son. And from serving God by constraint, As a slave, he comes to him with a spirit of adoption, as a beloved child. Now, the acts of this person may be, in many respects, what they were before. 
so that one who looks only on the outward appearance shall see no great difference between him and others. But God, who has made all this difference, discerns it and appreciates the obedience that is paid to him, not according to the mere act, but according to the motive or principle from which it flows. Now, taking this view of Christianity, we must say that it has been and yet is productive of incalculable good. For still, as well as in the apostolic age, God begets sons to himself by means of it. And when they are made sons, he pours forth the spirit of his son into their hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, uh, right away, what he's saying is the difference in... in um, in uh, the believers and unbelievers might not necessarily be what you see them do because unbelievers can do um, seemingly good things. But he says it seems to be from what is inside that inner motive. Why do you do it? What is that secret habit of mind that God sees that we, you and I might not see? He says this in illustration of these words. First of all, he says, I showed the, I will show first of all, the relation which every true Christian bears to God. Every Christian, from a rebel and an enemy, becomes a son. In this we have the advantage of those under the law. The Jews, though God's peculiar people, were not his sons, but his servants. Or if we call them his sons, for doubtless he was a father unto them, still they were only as minors who differed very little from servants. They were under severe and burdensome restraints. They had but a small portion of their inheritance and actual enjoyment, and they performed their duties altogether in a servile spirit. But under the gospel, we are regarded as adult sons who are freed from those restraints and enjoy a a spirit of liberty in the whole of our life and conversation. This is not only affirmed in our text, but taken as it were for granted and assumed as the ground of those further blessings which are bestowed upon us. And to this we are introduced by our Lord Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us from that bondage in which we were once held. Though as Gentiles we have never been bound by the ceremonial law, we have of necessity been subject to the moral law, which is equally binding on every child of man. And under that we have been exposed to the most tremendous curses for our violations of it. But the Lord Jesus Christ by his obedience unto death, has both fulfilled its demands and suffered its penalties for us, and has thus freed us from it as a covenant, and has brought us into a better covenant, the covenant of grace. Hence it is that we receive a spirit of adoption. For in this better covenant, God grants all the blessings of salvation to us freely, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. And as soon as we, as ever we believe in Christ, admits us into his own family as his beloved children. Thus are we brought to God in the relation of sons and of all the benefits of children conferred upon us. Now he, so he's highlighting there right away, right? Our status, the spirit of adoption. We are the sons and daughters of the living God. That is a great privilege, isn't it? Um, the Old Testament saints, though, uh, though believers were truly were the sons and daughters of God, as Paul says in Galatians earlier, he says they were like they were like children who are underage. They were, and and in that sense, they were a little different from servants. You couldn't tell the difference between a servant and a minor. But now that we've grown up, he says we see the difference between those who are truly slaves and those who are. Uh, the true children of God. 
Uh, he talks about the privileges uh, that we have uh, by the Spirit. He says, first of all, uh, the liberty of access to him. He says, the Jews dared not to draw nigh to God within the limits that were assigned them whether on Mount Sinai or in the temple. But at the death of our blessed Lord, the veil of the temple was rent in twain to intimate to us that now there was opened for us a new and living way into the holiest of all, even for every child of man. And that the nearer we came to God's mercy seat, the more certainly we should find acceptance with him. Uh, Secondly, we have boldness to spread our wants before him. To the Jews, there were many things which, however they might desire them, they dared not ask. Korah and his company were consumed for affecting the priesthood and presuming to offer incense to the Lord. But to our request, no limit whatever is assigned, provided they be in accordance with God's will and have a tendency to advance his glory. With these obvious and necessary distinctions, we may ask what we will, and it shall be done unto us. However wide we open our mouths, God will fill them. If we are straightened at all, it is in our own bowels. We are not straightened in God. For he is both able and willing to do for us, exceeding abundantly above all that we can either ask or think. Thirdly, we also have confidence in his care. He says, a servant may hope for kind attentions from his master in a day of necessity, though still to a very limited extent. But a son is assured that whatever relief his father can afford him shall be readily bestowed. His necessities may be great and his troubles of long continuance, but he has no fear that the tender sympathy of his father shall fail. Now this is what a spirit of adoption gives to every true Christian. He knows in whom he has believed and that he is both able and willing to keep that which he has committed to him. He knows not indeed how God shall interpose for him or when, but he is persuaded that God will never leave him nor forsake him but will make all things work together for his ultimate good and cause his light and momentary afflictions to work out for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Hence, without doubting of a happy issue to his affections, he casts his care on God who careth for him. Lastly, we have an assured expectation of our inheritance. He says this, Simeon writes this, Of this a servant can have no hope, but a son knows that he has a title to his father's inheritance, and that his father has assigned it to him in his will. But stronger far is the Christian's assurance of his title to heaven, and of his ultimate possession of it. God has promised to him, not grace only, but glory also and has begotten him to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for him, who is also kept by the power of God for it. And who shall rob him of this inheritance? Who shall separate him from his father's love? He can look on the innumerable hosts of men and devils and boldly defy them all. The spirit of adoption, which enables him to cry, Abba, Father, assures him of the victory, and is to him a pledge and earnest of his future glory. That's really good. The spirit of adoption. That's what Paul is trying to drive at and to show these believers that, listen, if you go to the law, you're, you're losing all of these privileges that we have in Jesus Christ to be sons. You want to be slaves, but God has offered us and makes us sons of the living God. And look at all the things we have confidence in his care and a short expectation of inheritance um, to know that we can come near to him. Don't lose those things.
Next, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he continues on uh, this whole idea of freedom and what we have in Jesus as the adopted sons. And he says in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Simeon writes on this. He says, The doctrine of justification by faith is inculcated throughout all the Holy Scriptures, even in parts where we should never have thought of looking for it. Not only was it fully and explicitly declared to Abraham, but it was allegorically set forth by his putting away of Hagar and her son Ishmael and his constituting of Isaac, his sole heir. And we see that earlier in chapter 4, Galatians 4, just right before this verse. This was intended to shadow forth to us that we cannot be saved by the legal covenant, the covenant of works but that we must embrace and be saved by the new covenant, the covenant of grace. By the covenant of grace, we are liberated from the bondage of the covenant of works. And in this liberty, it becomes us all to stand fast. He says we shall be led from these words to notice first the Christian's privilege. The Christian is a believer in Christ, and by his faith, he has made a partaker of all that Christ has procured for him. He was formerly under the law, and by that law was condemned. As long as he continued under that law, he continued under the curse. But Christ has freed him from that law and brought him to a state of perfect liberty. Well, first of all, he did this by suffering the penalty due to his transgressions. He has released us from it. Simeon writes, Christ became the surety and substitute of sinful man. Did we owe a debt which it was impossible for us to pay? He discharged it for us, even to the utmost farthing. Were we under the curse of the broken law? He became a curse for us and endured all that was due to our sins. Hence there remains now no condemnation to us. If only we believe in Christ, we are justified from all things, and our sins are blotted out as a morning cloud. Secondly, by giving us faith, he has brought us into a better covenant. There is a new covenant, which is a perfect contrast with the old covenant. The old covenant cursed us for one transgression and provided no remedy for us whatever. The new covenant provides for us all that our necessities can require. Pardon and peace and holiness and glory. Into this covenant are all brought who believe in Jesus. He, therefore by imparting faith to our souls, translates us from the one to the other and both liberates from all the evils of the former and conveys to us all the blessings of the latter. From the very instant of our believing in Christ, we cease to have anything either to hope or fear from the covenant of works. We are dead to it and it is dead to us. It is abrogated and annulled, and like a woman released from her nuptial bonds by the death of her husband, we are at liberty to unite ourselves to Christ, that through him we may bring forth fruit unto God. Thus, being made free by Christ, we are made free indeed. So again, Paul here, and Simeon is trying to show us what Paul is saying here. We are free from the law. We are free in Christ. Don't lose that freedom. Christ has set us free in himself. Lastly, the last thing we'll read from Galatians is Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, because all of this is rooted ultimately in the cross of Christ. We have the spirit of adoption. We now walk in the spirit. We are set free at liberty 
And then lastly, he says this in verse 14 of chapter 6, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Simeon writes this about this verse. The Christian, in whatever he does, is characterized by singleness of eye and simplicity of mind. All others, even when they appear most zealous for God, have sinister and selfish ends in view. This may be seen in the Judaizing teachers, whilst they were insisting on the observance of circumcision and the Jewish ritual. They wished to have it thought that they were actuated only by a conscientious sense of duty to Moses and to God, but there were other secret motives by which they were impelled. They were themselves preachers of the gospel, but knowing how obnoxious both to Jews and Gentiles the simple preaching of the cross was, whilst the blending of certain observances with it was palatable to every mind, they sought to avoid the persecution which they knew that a simple exhibition of Christ crucified would bring upon them. They had an eye also to their own glory, for they affected to be leaders of a party in the church, and labeled to exalt themselves by augmenting the number of their followers." They, that they were not actuated by a real desire to approve themselves to God was evident from hence that they, notwithstanding all their endeavors to enforce the observance of the law and others, did not keep the law themselves. But all such corrupt practices St. Paul abhorred. And whilst he disdained to seek his own glory, he was proof against the fear of man and labored only to advance the glory of his divine master and the salvation of those to whom he ministered. They, says he, who constrain you to be circumcised, desire to make a fair show in the flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. We'll talk here uh, underneath this section about Paul's views of the cross, and he says here his views of its excellency. Simeon writes, by the cross of Christ is here meant the doctrine of salvation through a crucified redeemer. This he preached, and it was the great subject of all his ministrations. Though it was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, yet he would know nothing else and glory in nothing else. He gloried in it as displaying such wonders of love and mercy to the world at large. Here was a plan of salvation suited to and sufficient for the necessities of the whole world. All were involved in one common ruin. All needed an atonement to be offered for their sins. The whole universe could not present one capable of expiating their guilt. The highest archangel was as incompetent to it as was the blood of bulls and goats. But God, of his infinite mercy, had devised a way. He had entered into covenant with his only begotten son. He had agreed with him that if he would assume our nature and make his soul an offering for sin, his sacrifice should be accepted in their behalf, and he should have from amongst the fallen race of Adam a seed, who should serve him and enjoy him forever. This stupendous plan has been executed. The Lord Jesus Christ has been made in the likeness of men and has become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." And having borne our sins in his own body on the tree and been exalted to the right hand of God as the head and forerunner of his people, he now offers salvation unto all freely, without money and without price. The persons sent out and commissioned by him to preach his gospel are empowered to declare that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. To every living man is this message sent with a full assurance that they who believe in Christ shall never perish but shall have life, or shall have eternal 
life. Well, that's the end of uh, Charles Simeon there. And I hope uh, you've, you've enjoyed getting to uh, know him uh, as he's helped us to get to know uh, the book of Galatians better. I hope that it's been helpful to you. And I think uh, you can see that he was a a faithful gospel preacher, always focused on the cross of Christ. And that's what we want our lives and our church and our faith to be ultimately centered and built upon and around. Okay, now let's turn our attention now to Ephesians. Now, the guy that we're going to use to uh, as our devotional thing for Ephesians is, again, you know, I use old guys often, but uh, this is somebody that I have, I've honestly never read this book, but um, uh, it's a commentary on Ephesians. It's by a guy named Robert E. Pattison. He lived from 1800 to 1874, and he was a Baptist pastor. He actually pastored at one time. I'm looking here on the back of this book. He was the pastor of Second Baptist Church in Salem, Massachusetts, as well as the pastor of First Baptist Church, Providence, Rhode Island, which is a very, very old Baptist church. I think it's sometimes called the the First Baptist Church of America uh, because uh, you might know that uh, Roger Williams, who was for a short while a Baptist, was a guy that uh, lived in Puritan, New England, was uh, kicked out uh, or it was, I don't know if it kicked out, but uh, definitely had some opposition uh, from some of the New England Puritans. And anyway, eventually left. And, and I think, I don't know if he started Providence or what, but uh, yeah, anyway, the First Baptist Church of Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, this guy was a pastor there in the 1800s and also taught at colleges and such. And anyway, the reason I know about this, I was, well, we got it in the library, but also, uh, but I saw it because Spurgeon, uh, in his uh, thing where he talks about commentaries and such, commentating and commentaries, actually highly recommended this book. Um, so it's a book that's not too thick, actually. So we're going to use it um, to help us kind of understand Ephesians from an old Baptist brother uh, from uh, the past. Okay, so Robert E. Pattison. Uh, this is available in the, in the library, too, if you're ever needing something to look at uh, for Ephesians. It's a blue, blue book. Uh, so I want to, uh, Paul, of course, opens up in uh, chapter one with a very uh, long sentence, right? It's, you probably, maybe, maybe you've heard that uh, verses three through 14 are actually just one long sentence in the Greek text. We break it up to help us understand it in English, but it's actually one long sentence. And uh, Paul opens up in verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so he, he opens up that way. Now I want to open up from verse four here. Um, so, Uh, Pattison here has a section called the scheme of mercy, um, and he's highlighting uh, verses 4 through 14 here. Um, And so he's going to talk underneath here. The big topics he's got here is he's talking about how in these verses where we see um, uh, about God choosing us, uh, all these different things, he says God is the author of these provisions of mercy. So God is, they all come from God. He's the author of them. He's the source of them. Uh, we see the plan of mercy that it was uh, from eternity. Uh, we see that the blessings to what we're chosen to and the reasons why uh, God did this. So let's kind of walk through a little bit of this commentary. Um, 
and uh, and see what we can learn from a from a Baptist, a faithful Baptist pastor and teacher from the past. Um, first of all, he says God is the author of these provisions of mercy. He says the doctrine that it is to God we owe our grateful praise for the provisions of salvation, according to the good pleasure of His will, pervades this passage and the whole new, excuse me, and the whole New Testament. As I live, saith the Lord the absolute Jehovah without distinction of persons. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is love. Behold what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The gospel had its origin in the divine will. It was after the counsel of his own will. The scheme is according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Secondly, the plan of man's redemption was antecedent to the events. It was from eternity. He says this, several of the terms indicate its antecedency. Now, what the word antecedent, right, means beforehand. It was before. God had planned this uh, before Um, so he didn't just like Jesus didn't just show up, but it had been planned. It was part of a plan of God. He says, having predestinated them, verse five to predestinate is to limit in, to bound or to define beforehand to settle in advance that the event shall occur and how it shall occur when spoken of as an act of God. It means that some future event is made certain by the divine decree. In the ninth verse, in the Greek, as well as in the translation, another term is employed, having substantially the same meaning, which he hath purposed in himself. The plan was conceived and resolved on or laid down in his own mind prior to its execution. It is a mental determination of a future event. In the 11th verse, both terms are employed, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That's very helpful, isn't it, as we think about the doctrines of predestination, because the word itself is clearly used here. I mean, it's, that's the term we have, uh, and the idea of being chosen or predestined or the purpose of God's will, and he highlights here, this was all part of God's plan and decided plan. It means God decided to carry out this plan and, and to save his people from their sins. He continues and says, Our knowledge of the attributes of God requires us to believe that this plan was not laid in the process of duration. At some limited period antecedent to the event of our actual faith in Christ, there never could have been a point of duration when God had not chosen those to be saved. If given to his son as the reward of his yet future sufferings, they must have been eternally given. This interprets the indefinite expression in the fourth verse, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So what he's highlighting there is the fact that this choosing had to happen in eternity past. And that's quite the thought, isn't it? That God, you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have always been, God has always determined and eternally in himself determined to save you. And God has eternally, it's just always been that you have been given to the Son. There's, that is just, uh, if you, you just, now we can't, obviously, there's a great limit where we can't fathom what that exactly means because God's mind and being 
is of a different kind than even than ours is um and it's infinite but it does mean that we know that it is eternally given an eternal plan what a thought what a humbling thought uh, thirdly, he says, to what believers are chosen? What are we chosen to? And he says, what are these spiritual blessings of which those chosen are to be made partakers? Well, in general terms, they are salvation, eternal life. But the apostle in this paragraph specifies particular aspects of salvation. First of all, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Secondly, redemption, which is explained in the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ. Thirdly, that we should be accepted in the beloved. That is, God looks upon Christ who is lovely and for his sake treats us, though vile and unlovely, as if lovely. This includes all the blessings of uh, Numbers. uh, Is that Numbers 1 and 2? I'm not sure what that exactly means in the commentary. We are virtually clothed with his loveliness, not having our own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. And fourthly, that we should be heirs, having predestinated predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Isn't that, that, so, so think about these blessings that you get because of God's decided plan to choose you to this you get, first of all, you're holy and without blame. Secondly, you're redeemed and forgiven. Thirdly, you're accepted in the beloved and thought of as lovely. Fourthly, you're made heirs. And then fifthly, he says the last object specified in this paragraph, and one which was deeply interesting to the Gentile portion of the Ephesian church, was that he might gather together and one all things in Christ, all which being in Christ are thus his, both which are in heaven and which are on earth earth we are all brought together in jesus christ those are the blessings what what amazing blessings we're we're made for we're made heirs of god we are predestinated and chosen uh, to these blessings we are saved unto them and we are given them uh given them it's just it's it's a beautiful passage of scripture and something that really we have to deeply uh, plumb the depths and we we really can't can we Lastly, he says, what, what moved God to such acts of grace? Why did God do this? Have you ever thought about that? Why? God, why did you do this? Why did God purpose in Christ and in the fullness of time execute his purpose to bless us with such spiritual blessings? There was no necessity in the case. It was a free voluntary act. He was coerced by no foreign power, nor was he morally urged by a sense of justice. In other words, right? No one forced God. You can't manipulate God to do this. He was no one's debtor. It wasn't like God owed anybody anything or as if some, some other God or some angel or we say, hey, listen, you owe us this. That's what he's trying to highlight. God purposed in himself according to the good pleasure of his will. He was self-moved. Now that's very, think about that. This is a very important thing about God. God is Uh, immutable. He does not change. He is impassable. In other words, we cannot make God experience emotion, emotional changes. He does not have emotions the way that we, you know, he, he, he is full on compassion. He is who he is. So we cannot manipulate God. We cannot move God to compassion. We cannot move God to justice. 
We cannot move God to anything because he is already perfect in himself. So therefore, his free decision to do what he decided to do was self-moved. You are saved. If you're a believer, you were saved not because of anything in you. Not because God owed it to you or me. Not because God owed us anything. Not because God was moved to compassion even by us. But he has infinitely always been compassionate. He has always been compassionate. He was not moved to compassion. He has always been fully compassionate. And therefore, he shows us who he is. His full, infinite grace and love. He was self-moved to save us. So if we are, if God chose to save us because of his self-moving well, then nothing is going to stop him from loving us after. Because sometimes, right, we're wondering, well, does God love me after I'm a believer? And, you know, I, I fail him all the time. Well, God never chose you because you were lovely. He chose you because he self-moved him. He, he decided to do this um, himself. So that's why uh, he did it. Uh, he says this, this general principle is taught in the 11th verse, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. David recognizes this principle of the divine government in his providences. According to thine own heart hast thou done all these things. In the solitude of his past eternity he purposed in himself. In the silent depths of his own infinite thoughts and feelings he foresaw our fallen race. And out of them chose a seed to serve him, those whom he would make holy in love. It was an election of grace. Now, this is very important, I think, as well as when we, because uh, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, which is, um, was, has been taught in the church for, since the apostle Paul, um, has always been uh, open to uh, misunderstandings. Um, and Paul under, I think Paul understood that as well, because one of the things people will say, well, is, and this is something, this is a misunderstanding. This is, and it's something that we want to be honest about, right? Because some people will say, well, if, if you believe in the fact that God is sovereign, that he self, that he selects, he, um, he is moved and, and moves, I shouldn't say he is moved. He moves himself. He, he, he saves because of his own decision and plan and purpose well then does that mean that uh god uh just um some people will get a big head all right or some people are thinking well i'm so special look at me the reality is as what he's highlighting here it is no person can say the say that um well god chose me because because i am a better person than that person or God saved me because, um, because I tried harder than that person. Or God, 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 uh, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to the text of Scripture because I tried to read the Bible harder than that person over there. Or, or the, or you know, I'm saved because, um, because I went to church and my family always taught me to do the right thing. And that person over there is not saved because you know what? They didn't try as hard as I did. They're not as sincere as I am. They didn't decide or do this or that. 
the way that I have. That can never be. Salvation is exclusively because of God's free favor. End of story. It has no, no one can boast. And Paul says that elsewhere in Romans, doesn't he? And that's what he's highlighting here. And that's what Robert Pattison is trying to teach us here. It is solely because of his grace that he does it. He chose a seed. He chose a people to be saved, to be made holy in love, but it was not because of anything in them. And that's what, that's what Moses told them in Deuteronomy chapter seven, didn't he? It is not because of your righteousness that I love you, but it's because I decided to love you. And that should humble us as well. Well, he continues, and I'm just going to summarize this real quick, but he says it was out of his own, for his own glory uh, that he did this. Um, he did it also because of his benevolence, his, his love, his goodness, the fact that he loves us um, as well. So that's kind of giving us a bit of a, of a thing about when we think about God's salvation as seen in Ephesians and those opening verses, we see the overall picture of grace. Well, there's so much more we could talk about here, but one last thing I want to do is from chapter two here. And there's, again, so many memorable verses and important verses that we could read and think about. Um, But here later on in chapter two, Paul here is highlighting the fact that this salvation that has come about in Jesus Christ has been given to us, not simply to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles. And we are complete and equal citizens with the Jews in Jesus Christ. And so uh, eventually he says, you know, remember, this is who you guys were, you Gentiles, you were aliens uh, from the covenants of God. And then eventually he says in verse 14, he says uh, that he himself, Jesus Christ is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, let's think a little bit here because Pattison talks about this. Jews and Gentiles made one and both reconciled unto God through Christ. This was an amazing thing back then and it should still, we need to think about it a bit because sometimes we lose the force and the the, the real uh, power and surprise and amazement, uh, the fact that God has made the Gentiles equal heirs with the Jews. He says this, Patterson does in bringing the gospel in bringing the Gentiles and the Jews alike under the power of the gospel, two effects are produced. They are reconciled to each other and both to God. The first is the consequence of the second and both the fruits of Christ's death and made actual by the Holy spirit. The middle wall of partition between us consisted in alienated feelings having its seat in natural depravity, but aggravated by the ceremonial institutions which God had given the Jews as a nation called the law of commandments contained in ordinances. These ordinances, of which God had ordained many, consisted of circumcision and their ritual worship, were designed, besides their moral and religious influence, to keep the Jews separate from other nations. A striking illustration of this is seen in the construction of the temple. None but Jews were allowed to enter into the sanctuary, There was a special apartment called the court of the Gentiles, farther than which no Gentile could enter. This was common to them and to animals bought and sold for sacrifices. All nations could come thus far for prayer. It was often entered for merchandise. Even the unclean were not prohibited. Between that, however, and the altar, not to say the inner sanctuary, there was a middle wall of partition. 
This made the Jews, as God's favored people, proud and often contemptuous. They looked upon other nations as dogs, to whom nothing holy must be given. In consequence of these distinctions, often maintained in an oppressive manner, the Gentiles were rendered envious and frequently hated the Jews. Add to this that all men are by nature the enemies of God. Now to make Jews and Gentiles one and to restore the souls of the chosen, both Jews and Gentiles, to fellowship with the Father, was the errand of Christ to earth. His object was to make of twain one new man. This he did, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, which these ordinances occasioned. All these ordinances centering in him and fulfilled by him on the cross were displaced by the gospel. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. He thus abolished the occasion of enmity, which is its meaning in this passage. And that he might reconcile us both into God in one body. The whole scope of scripture teaching is that there is an alienation of feelings on the part of God toward the sinner, as well as on the part of the sinner toward God. God pities but cannot approve or love. Christ by his death made expiation, was a sweet-smelling savor unto God. Noah, after the waters subsided, builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. This was a type and prophecy of Adam's, of Christ's sacrifice, and the satisfaction it gave to God must have consisted in the faith of Noah in the coming Messiah. To this Paul obviously refers in his epistle. As Christ hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But the force of the expression to reconcile both unto God in this passage regards chiefly the change which the sinner experiences toward God. Being an enemy, by wicked works, he becomes the cheerful, obedient worshiper of Jehovah. This is effected by regeneration. Having slain the enmity, to slay, as is used in the 16th verse, is a much more forcible term, more specific than abolish in the 15th. Ordinances are abolished when made to cease by being abrogated, or when their object has already been accomplished, they are no longer a force. To slay is to kill or to destroy by violence. Sin is condemned, that is, put to death or executed as a criminal, crucified. This, we say, is effected in regeneration by giving faith, which works by love, constraining by the love of Christ, imparting a spirit of reconciliation, and so making peace. So Christ is our peace, and he brings both Jew and Gentile together. And that's really uh, what we're going to see here, is the fact that in Christ Jesus now, because of what he's done for us, both Jews and Gentiles now have peace with God. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope, um, you know, being introduced to some other people like Robert Pattison um, and uh, Charles Simeon, Names that, you know, um, just good to remember the saints of old who've gone before us, um, who help us to understand the scriptures. Next week, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be reading 3, 4, 5, 6, and uh, beginning uh, the next book of Philippians as well. Well, I hope this has been encouraging to you. Thank you for listening to it, and take care, and God bless.